Okay, so chapter seven, uh, I'm going to read the whole chapter. I think I got off lightly considering some of the um, passages we've been reading. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harad. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moray. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them there for you. If I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the three hundred, who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Purah, and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Purah, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, Ficus locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend of his, a friend of his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them, with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, 
just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and shouting with their sorry and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, "A sword for the Lord and for Gideon!" While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittar, towards Zerah, that'll do, as far as the border of Abel Meholah near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them, as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they took the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, and we pray now as we uh, consider your word that uh, you would be enlivening our hearts and really sharpening our uh, commitment to you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you feel when you hear of uh, Christian ministries and churches which are flourishing and growing because uh, people are hearing the gospel and responding to that? Pretty good, hey? Thumbs up. That's what we ought to be uh, wanting. But there's something which we do need to be a little bit cautious about, and that's the tendency for us to honour leaders at the expense of honouring God. Uh, It's not hard to sometimes get the balance wrong in that regard Uh, because when a Christian leader has been exercising a um, fruitful ministry, that's often connected with the fact that they've been faithful in terms of the, uh, the gifts and the opportunities that have been given to them by God. And, um, and so we, it's right for us to, to give thanks to God for our Christian leaders. It's right for us to give thanks to God uh, when uh, people's ministries are being effective, whether they're in leadership or not. I thank God for Billy Graham. I've never actually heard him speak um, in person, but uh, I do know that uh, when he uh, came to Sydney in 1959, that... Um, some of the people who were converted at his uh, crusades were people who grew in godliness and when I was converted, they taught me the word of God. And so I'm very grateful for that ministry. But we don't worship Billy Graham, do we? We thank God for the work that God did through him. Sometimes we can speak more about the success of a leader than we do about... Uh, the, uh, the greatness and the glory of God, that uh, God has brought about victories through that particular leader. On, on occasions, I get brochures sent to me because I'm a minister, 
and uh, brochures that are inviting me to attend conferences to hear Christian leaders speak. And sometimes I've come, I've received brochures which say things like, they'll talk about the speaker and they'll say, come and hear this man. Um, he has established five churches in the past 15 years. Or come and hear this man because he started off with a dozen friends in his lounge room and now 10 years later he's pastoring a church of 2,000 people. That's great. But who established the five churches in five years? Who grew the group in the lounge room to the crowd of 2,000? Where does God fit in with all of that? Now that's an issue which we learn a little bit about in the case of Gideon in Judges uh, chapters 6 through to 8, uh, which would be great if you could have that open in front of you. And incidentally, the story of Gideon is the longest um, story of any judge uh, in the book of Judges. It covers three chapters. This morning, what I want to do is something a little bit different, and I want to start in the middle. I want to start in the middle of, uh, of chapter 7, and then go to the beginning. Now, why would I do that? Well, the reason for that is because the heart of the Gideon episode is found in chapter 7, uh, verses 1 to 8. Now, when you think of Gideon, uh, what's the next word that comes into your mind? Do you think of Gideon's? Gideon's faith? Yep. Something else beginning with F? Thank you. Gideon's fleeces. Uh, we... Think about Gideon's fleeces. But the story of Gideon is actually more about something different. It's more about Israel's uh, weakness and God's strength. I think that's the main gist of the story as opposed to his fleeces. But we'll come to his fleeces in a few moments. Now, Israel was in their typical situation. Uh, Deborah, their last judge, had died. And so what did they do? Well, they slipped back into their idol worship. Um, there's nothing new in that. And this time, God's punishment, uh, his discipline, came in the form of the Midianites. And of course, uh, when the, they were oppressed by the Midianites, the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. It's the same old, same old. And so God raised up Gideon to defeat the Midianites. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1 kind of sets the scene here in the middle of the Gideon story. Uh, where Gideon and his men are preparing to invade the Midianite camp. Uh, but verse 2 is the key to the, the whole episode. Uh, Gideon had gathered a force of about 32,000 men. That was actually, that sounds like a lot of people, doesn't it? 32, imagine 32,000 people. You know, on a, uh, well, that was actually small in comparison to the Midianite army of 135 thousand but yet it was not small enough for god now, verse 2 the lord said to gideon you have too many men for me to deliver midian into their hands in order that israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her announce now to the people anyone who trembles with fear anyone who's a bit scared about this battle they can turn back and leave Mount Gilead. And so 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. You get that? If you're not up to it, if you're not feeling like it, 
if you don't have the stomach for the battle, then um, you can hit the road. And so 22,000 left and went back home to the wife and the kids. How many did that leave? 10,000. Yet that was still too many for God. So in verses 4 through to 6, he told Gideon to take the 10,000 down to the water for a drink. And those who drunk by putting their faces down to the water and lapping up like a dog, uh, they were to be sent home, whilst those who were a little bit more cultured and drunk from the cup of their hands, uh, they could stay. So 9,700 men sent home. How many does that leave? 300. Uh, and I, you know, my arithmetic isn't always great, but by my calculations, that's one Israelite soldier for every 450 Midianite soldiers. What are the odds? <laughs> Not looking great, humanly speaking. And check out the weapons which God gave them. Uh, you know, one man for every 450 Midianites, well, if you had a, some sort of fantastic machine gun, that would be useful, but uh, what did God give them? Well, a trumpet, a torch and a jar each. Now, what's God, what's going on here? What's, what's God doing? Well, that's the picture in the middle of the story. Let's now go back uh, to the beginning and check out what was the prelude to all of this. Um, chapter 6, verses 1 and 6, I'm going to read that out, so follow with me in your Bibles. Again the Midianites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves and strongholds. Whenever the, Midianites, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Same old, same old. Now, there are a few things which frighten farmers more than locusts. I mean, uh, you know, once they hatch and they, uh, they sweep across the, the countryside in their tens of millions, they just, they just wreak devastation. They leave um, destruction in their wake. And unless you've got aerial spraying or something else high-tech, there's not a lot you can do about it. Well, the Midianites were like that. They destroyed Israel's crops, they slaughtered their livestock... And they drove God's people out of their homes and into caves and clefts in rocks to live. Enter Gideon. Now take a look at verses 11 and 12. In verse 11, uh, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. So he's threshing the wheat undercover uh, in a winepress where the Midianites wouldn't expect to find the wheat. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, get this, mighty warrior. Mighty warrior. Go down to verse 14. 
The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? I mean, mighty warrior, you know, leading Israel to victory. Humanly speaking, you've got to think, don't think so. <laughs> not going to happen. But see how he responds in verse 15. He says, but Lord, how can I save Israel? My, my clan is, is the weakest in my tribe and I'm the weakest in my family. So I'm the lowest of the lows here. <laughs> I'm the last person that you'd be calling a mighty warrior. Now, Gideon doesn't have any tickets on himself. Uh, the idea of him leading Israel into victory, he just thinks that's just crazy. You know, find someone else for the job. I wonder if you've ever felt that way about going into battle for the Lord. I wonder, uh, you know, it's spiritual warfare, isn't it? Um, especially when we, we want to share the gospel with, uh, with someone who's quite opposed to Christian things. That's scary. Or we find ourselves in a situation where we need to stand up for God and stand up for righteousness amongst people who don't love him. That's scary. Have you ever felt, no Lord, not me, I can't do it, the opposition's too much? Well, so did Gideon. So did Gideon. But see God's promise to him in verse 16, what does he say? I will be with you. That's key, isn't it? I will be with you. And friends, if God is with you, really, when you think about it, what is it that you need to worry about? So in verse 17, um, well, Gideon says, you know, fine, he understands that. But Gideon still thought, well, I better make sure this is really God talking to me here. I don't want to go on any kamikaze mission. <laughs> And so he asks God for a miraculous sign to prove that it is God who's speaking to him. Now, what, was he right to do that? Well, last week, you know, remember Barak? Uh, God uh, didn't give him any signs, did he? And yet uh, Barak was disciplined for not fully trusting in God's promise when he said, yeah, I'll go into battle, but I really want Deborah to be by my side. God could have said to Gideon, no Gideon, um, I'm not going to give you a sign, my word is sufficient for you. But in his mercy, God gave Gideon a sign. In fact, throughout the story, he gave him a total of four signs, four miraculous signs. The first sign is in verses 19 to 23, where Gideon uh, prepares a sacrifice for the Lord and the angel of the Lord ignites the sacrifice. The angel of the Lord touches the sacrifice with a stick and kaboom, um, the, uh, the, the, the sacrifice is ablaze. Notice Gideon's response to that in verse 22. How does he respond? He says, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Now, is he convinced? Sounds like it, doesn't he? Yep, I've seen, I've seen, that's enough, I've seen the Lord face to face. He's convinced, but does he obey? No, in fact, he asks for another sign. Uh, verse 36, Gideon said to God, uh, if you save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, 
I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, uh, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. There you go. Exactly what uh, Gideon had asked for. I mean, and so he should have been satisfied that by that, shouldn't he? But was he satisfied? No. No, he said, oh, it's not enough. He asks for sign number three, verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. I mean, why would God be angry with him? Mm. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. And this time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. Isn't God's patience amazing sometimes? <laughs> I mean, Gideon's requests for confirming signs... It's actually an expression of unbelief. It's an expression of, of, of doubt, that he's doubting God's word and God's promise. And that's why he asks God, please don't get angry with me. You know, can I just push the friendship a little bit further here? And yet, sometimes Christians think that we should use the example of Gideon in order to discover God's will for us. For us. Have you ever done that? You, know, you need to make a decision, so you set up some kind of a test for God. You might say to God, you know, if you make the telephone ring in the next 30 minutes and it's my mum on the other end, then I will know that's a sign that you want me to do whatever it is that you want me to do. You know, buy the Ford rather than the Holden or something like that. It's called putting out a fleece. And it's something which is found its way into Christian culture based on this, these verses. Now, I hate to slaughter a sacred cow, but using this passage as a basis for God's guidance is not really such a great idea. Uh, firstly, because this passage is only describing what Gideon did. It's not prescribing what, what we should do. And secondly, Gideon was actually being ungodly. God's word was already clear to Gideon, but he didn't trust. He wanted more. And so it's not really a model for us. Um, how does God guide us? Well, we read his word, and some things in God's word are explicit, that this is what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Um, that's clear. And as we read God's word, it also gives us wisdom as to how we can make godly and wise decisions in life. And... Uh, we pray about things as well, but uh, the idea of putting out fleeces on the basis of what Gideon did here is not a great basis for God's guidance for us. It was after this first sign, in, uh, the, after the first sign, that is the altar um, coming ablaze, the sacrifice being on fire in verse 25, it was after that first sign that the conflict with the Midianites was triggered. And we see this in uh, chapter 6, verse 25. Uh, that same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal. That's interesting, isn't it? Gideon's dad had an altar to Baal of his own. 
and cut down the Asherah pole beside it, then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. Now, what's, that's really, really important because the establishment of um, altars to Baal and Asherah poles in Israel, that was a statement of that who's in control of this land? It's Baal. Who is really the ruler? It's Baal, the god of the Midianites. And so to tear down the altar to Baal and to replace it with a, an altar to the true god, that's like lowering a flag and raising a different flag, isn't it? That's like saying that God is the ruler here and to actually use the timber of the Asherah pole as wood for the fire for the altar makes that statement even clearer. That the God of Israel is the ruler here, not the God of the Midianites. This is a declaration of war against Midian. And uh, I guess that Gideon knew that because uh, when did he do this deed? He waited until it was dark because he was afraid he was timid he was scared and that's a picture of Gideon and yet something happens which changes him in verse 34 of chapter 6 do you see what it is that changes him it's the spirit of God the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon uh, just as the Holy Spirit um, indwells us if we are Christians and uh, empowers us to have changed lives and to be involved in God's work. And so when the Holy Spirit em empowers Gideon, comes upon Gideon, that's the beginning of the end for the Midianites. So it's one weak, feeble man against the enemies of God's people. It kind of makes you think of uh, other people who we know who've God has used to do great things when it's been sort of one man or it seemed like one man against the world or one woman against the world. Last week we looked at, uh, in the evening, we looked at the life of Martin Luther standing up for the truth of the gospel against the powers and the authorities. 135,000 Midianites against Gideon's 300. What's God saying? 300 men plus God is greater than any military force you could possibly gather. Gideon was still nervous. And so in chapter 7, verses 9 through to 15, God in his mercy gave him a fourth sign. He said, look, if you're feeling a bit, a bit anxious about this, Gideon, take your servant, go down into the Midianite camp and just listen. And he does that and he overhears two Midianites talking about a dream that one of them had was a nightmare because they were defeated by the Israelites. And so that was enough. That was the, just the sign uh, for him to go back and then, then the 300 Israelites, they sneak up on the Midian camp at night, they blow their trumpets, they smash their jars and they shout out aloud and the Midianites freak out. God causes them to panic and in the darkness they turn their swords on each other. 
and that's the end for them. What did Gideon's army do? Virtually nothing. So who gets the honour? Who should get the honour? God. But take a look at chapter 8, verse 22. Chapter 8, 20, everyone got that? Chapter 8, verse 22. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson. Now what are they saying? Sounds like they're wanting Gideon to be a king. In fact, they want a dynasty like the pagan nations around them. Rule over us, they say, because why? Because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. Who saved them? timid man, 300 pathetic soldiers, trumpets, torches and jars. Who saved them? Well, we go back to where we started, don't we? In chapter 2, verse 7, verse 2, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. That's why God did it. And yet Israel thinks, well, Gideon's pretty clever. He defeated 135,000 Midianites with 300 men from the brass band section. Gideon's reply in verse 8.23 is actually a very appropriate reply. 8.23, Gideon responds by saying, I will not rule over you, nor will my son, for the Lord God will rule you. That's a high moment for Gideon, isn't it? (laughs) That's a great response. But you've got to ask this question, why... Would they even be dreaming of the idea of Gideon becoming their king? And when we look more closely at the back end of the the passage in chapter 8, maybe, just maybe, it's because after the initial victory that Gideon actually started to behave like a king. In chapter 8, verse 2, after the... The army had basically been killed, killed each other. Gideon pursued two of the Midianite kings across the other side of the Jordan. And you probably noticed in the reading from Joanne that the River Jordan keeps on coming up at that point Um, because uh, uh, um, once you've got to the Jordan River and you've pushed your enemy over the other side, the eastern side, what have you done? You've effectively pushed them out of the promised land. You've done the job. But Gideon kept up the pursuit. And when he came to a couple of towns, uh, Succoth and Peniel, uh, where he demanded that the inhabitants of those towns feed his, his men, and they refused, the result for them was brutal in terms of the way that Gideon punished them. And more than that, when he caught the kings, if you have a look at uh, chapter 8, verse 18, uh, 18 to 21, then he asked Zeba and Zalmanna, they're the two kings, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Apparently that's another incident that we're not... uh, which which is not narrated for us. Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. 
As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jephthah, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jephthah did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Zeba and Zalmanah said, come, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. And so Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camels' necks. So it seems here that there's something else going on in Gideon's heart. That there's, he's pursuing these kings because they've killed his family. And there's a, some revenge going on here. Now, like Barak last week, Gideon is listed as a man of faith in Hebrews 11. But he wasn't perfect. He was, he was sinful. Uh, indeed, after Midian's defeat, in verses 22 to 27, there is another incident. And it is this. Gideon uses the gold from the plunder uh, to make an ephod. Now, you remember what an ephod is? It's a, it's a priestly garment. The, the priest wears an ephod and it's got pockets in it for the Urim and the Thummim, the two stones, uh, uh, by which actually you can, Israel was to inquire of the Lord and his will. And so... In one sense, it's, uh, it's fair enough for Gideon to manufacture an ephod uh, because he's the one who's saying, no, Yahweh, the Lord is the king of Israel and so therefore uh, we have this ephod through which we can determine the will of the king. And so that's a reasonable enough thing to do. It's consistent with his view that the Lord is king. But what happens to this ephod in verse 27? In verse 27, he places the ephod in Ophrah, his, his, his own town, and all, is, is, all of Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it them, there, and it became a snare for Gideon and his family. That is... The ephod is treated like an idol. Uh, and that's a real problem when we actually make physical objects. Uh, it becomes an idol and that actually has catastrophic consequences uh, for Gideon's family and for the whole of Israel, which we'll learn more about next week. Catastrophic consequences for Gideon's family and all of Israel. Now, in 1959, at the last Billy Graham crusade in Sydney, 150,000 people packed the Sydney cricket ground with a landline or something through to the showground uh, in order to hear... Um, Billy Graham preached the gospel. Can you imagine that happening in Sydney today? 150,000 people packing two stadiums to hit. Can I ask, was anyone there? Put up your hand. I want to see one. I'm going to count one, two, three, four, five, six. Six, six of you were there for that. 
I tried the same exercise in the 845 service. One third of the congregation put their hands up. Isn't that fantastic? Fantastic. Amazing. I want you to listen to what Billy Graham said to that audience on the last night of 150,000 Aussies uh, gathering together and hearing the gospel. And this is what he said, and I quote, When you take pictures and applaud, you're applauding the wrong person. <laughs> I'm here to represent Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. To him be the glory and the praise and the honour. Great statement, isn't it? You're applauding the wrong person. <laughs> now, like Gideon, you and I are involved in spiritual warfare. Um, God has given us a task, the task of going into all of the world and making disciples of all men. Is that something which we do by ourselves? No, of course not. Uh, in chapter 6, God told Gideon, I will be with you. And that's the encouragement. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus said at uh, the Great Commission in Matthew 28? Go into the world, make disciples of all men, and surely I am with you. Always, even to the end of the age, I am with you. That is what gives us the boldness and the confidence to go forward and to speak the word of God clearly uh, in our age. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, um, Paul uh, said that to the Corinthians, that he said, when I, when I went to Corinth, uh, he said, I didn't come with wise and persuasive words. And in a sense, he's saying, I didn't come with worldly power. I didn't come presenting myself. But I came actually with fear and trembling. Paul meant that. He was frightened when he went to Corinth. In Greece, where they, where they admire philosophers and wise people, he says, I came with fear and trembling. And why that was really important, why that is so special, is it meant that their faith did not actually rest on men's wisdom, but rather on God's power. It wasn't Paul's superior evangelistic talents which caused people to turn to Christ. It was only God by his spirit winning a victory in the hearts of each of those Corinthians who turned to Christ. And that's the same for us. What therefore does this drive us to do? Well, it gives us confidence to fight the battle but it ought to take us to our knees, praying to God, asking God to do his work, that eyes would be opened, that hearts would be melted, that people would place their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only by his power. It's thrilling when someone becomes a Christian, isn't it? It's thrilling when they become a Christian through, through either one of us. And it's exciting when our church grows. But when that happens, we can't say, hey, look at how good we are. Look at what we've achieved. Instead, we, we humbly rejoice in what God has done. And we know and we acknowledge and we are thankful for the privilege that he's given us to be a part of his work. 
So be bold and be prayerful. Let's pray now. Father, thank you again for this uh, example from, of, uh, uh, from your word. And we uh, do pray, Lord God, that uh, we would be people who really grasp in our minds and our hearts the impossibility of winning victories for you uh, on our own. And yet we can have such confidence because you are with us by your spirit that you are the one who uses our words and our actions to change people's lives. So we, uh, we do pray that you would use us, Lord God. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.